You ever just have those days you're like, I'm just not a sexy bitch? Yes. That's me every day. Tried to slap on a little bit of BB cream the other day. I was like, nope, that didn't fix anything. Welcome to another episode of My Favorite Feminist. My name's Megan, and I'm here with my co-host, Milena. Hi, guys. You're listening to the bi-weekly podcast that explores feminist figures in the arts and sciences. Today, we're going to learn about the first American woman in space and the first African-American professional sculptor. Okay, so if we're going to go to space, does this mean you'll travel in space with me? No. No, come on. This is like the third person you've covered that has something to do with going into space. I, yeah, because astronauts are scientists, too. In fact, they often have PhDs. Okay, well, I mean, I'm just saying, like, yeah, we don't have PhDs, but, like, maybe one day it'll be a privatized service and we can travel to the moon or Mars. Maybe I get, like, a Groupon discount, two-for-one special. I'm not honestly feeling it after after doing the research that I did this week. Uh Uh-oh. Like... This, this, just, just her alone and not the other women that I came across <laughs> has even further made me not want anything to do with the icy cold death of space. Okay, well, when the chance comes, I'll buy the tickets for you and me and then we'll talk about it later. I'm afraid to ask, what did you uncover? She overall did well, but she had some colleagues that didn't we'll we'll get into it okay it's it's sad i had to after doing this i kind of had to um close my laptop and walk away for a little bit and like not look at the internet and you'll see you'll see kind of glad that maybe we're not ending on your segment today i mean her story did not end too too sadly not as sadly as it could have Okay, well, who is this mysterious her that you keep referring to? Who who are we learning about today? I'm talking about Sally Ride. Again, her story is actually not really that sad. It was just, again, what I uncovered with her other colleagues. But I do want to talk about her because she did some amazing things and made some firsts. And we need to celebrate it. So, she was born May 26, 1951 in Encino, California to a Dale Burdell ride and a Carol Joyce ride. So, dad was a poli-sci professor at Santa Monica College and mom was a volunteer counselor at a women's correctional facility. Her family was heavily involved in the Presbyterian Church. So, so much to say that Sally's sister, Karen, actually ended up becoming a minister. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I'm just going to say it. Sally had a privileged childhood. She ended up graduating from a private high school called Westlake School for Girls. It was on an athletic scholarship. She was going to be, like, okay no matter what she did. Growing up, she was always interested in science, and she was always an athletic child. She ended up becoming a nationally ranked tennis player, actually. So at 10 years old, she was coached by Alice Marble, a former number one player who not only won the U.S. Open four times, but also once won the Wimbledon. I love the contrast our two individuals are going to have in terms of their childhood. It's 
crazy. When I read it, I was like, okay. <laughs> but you know what? She, like, she ran with it. She did some amazing things. But definitely privilege got her far. I'm not, I'm, I'm going to say that it helped her out a lot. By her junior year in high school, Sally ranked 18th of the nation in tennis. When she graduated high school, she enrolled in Swarthmore College here in Pennsylvania. It's like 30 minutes south of me. I actually just went fishing there, so that was fun. So, yeah, she actually was at Swarthmore for three semesters and won the Eastern Intercollegiate Women's Tennis Championship twice. So... Tennis was such an important part in her life that she straight up dropped out of Swarthmore to pursue her tennis career after semester three. Oh, that's pretty sweet. That obviously wasn't it, because we're talking about her being in space, so how does she go from... <laughs> She's a really solid backhand. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> she she didn't make it to professionalism. She just enrolled back into college I guess she just decided that it wasn't for her mm -hmm. uh there was a biographical book written about Sally by a Sue Hurwitz called Sally Rides Shooting for the Stars and in it uh she has a quote from her mom from Sally's mom saying Sally simply couldn't make the ball go exactly where she wanted it to go and Sally wouldn't settle for anything short of excellence in herself and then later on, her mom would explain that she thinks that she was going to find excellence in herself in her science pursuits, and that's exactly what she did. So when she went back to college, she enrolled in a few semesters at UCLA and then ended up transferring to Stanford as a junior. Okay. She graduated with a bachelor's degree in physics and in English once everything was said and done, and then knocked out a master's degree in 1975 and a PhD in physics in 1978, studying astrophysics. And those were both also from Stanford. All three of her degrees were from an Ivy League university. <laughs> I mean, like, if you're going to get your PhD from somewhere, like, I mean, that, like, might be on my top five, maybe. Ah. <laughs> uh... She was, she was a slacker. She could have totally done Yale or Harvard. <laughs> so I guess she was like, I don't know what to do after my PhD. Because while she was working on it, she saw an ad from NASA in the Stanford School newspaper and was like, yeah, let me throw my name in the ring. NASA called her in to be part of NASA Astronaut Group 8 in 1978. So that, again, there were seven before her, seven groups. Mm -hmm. And it was the first class to select women in it. So 35 people were selected out of 8,000 applicants, and mm -hmm. she was one of the 35. After a year of astronaut training, she served as a ground-based capsule communicator and helped develop the Canadarm robot that was attached to the space shuttles and would literally be the space shuttle arms, the robot arms. Do you know um, how many other women were included within her class? Six of them were women. Three were male African-Americans, and one was a... A male Asian American. Okay, so six women. Six women. Out of 35. Out of 35. Yep. Not the best numbers, but I mean, compared to zero, it's more than that. This was also in the 70s. Yeah. I still know better. Still should have known better then, but. I know. It's a start. In 1982, she married a fellow astronaut named Steve Hawley. And it wasn't until 1983 that she took her first flight into space 
uh, in the STS-7 space mission aboard the space shuttle Challenger. It was NASA's seventh space shuttle mission into space. The mission had the most crew members at the time with five seats. It mm-hmm. held Robert L. Crippen as the commander, Frederick H. Hawk as the pilot, John M. Fabian, Norman Thagard, and Sally, who were mission specialists, the, the last three names. So the mm-hmm. flight had several objectives that even included creating and deploying two communication satellites, and even medical tests that concerned itself with the nausea astronauts felt during the, space, uh, the first phase of space flight. Sally's mm-hmm. main focus, however, was to drive the giant robotic arms. So she was also the first American woman in space, so that attracted some attention. Megan, the woman has three degrees and can operate giant robotic arms. That she designed. That she designed. She helped design, yeah. But before she even left, she was bombarded with questions like, what kind of makeup will you take on the mission? And do you weep when things go wrong on the job? Oh, and my personal favorite, Megan. Yeah. Will going into space affect your reproductive organs? I wish you guys could see my face right now. (laughs) I can't see your face right now. Oh, my God. I just... Yeah. All right. That's a pretty high level of bullshit to start off with. Yep. Yep. She tried not to answer them. She tried to be as graceful as possible. There was nothing snarky that really came out of her mouth, but there are reports of her lamenting that those were the questions asked of her. Yeah. Like, she thought that society was farther along and well those questions (laughs) surprise it's still not surprise welcome to america nevertheless she continued on as an astronaut her first mission in space was six days two hours 23 minutes 59 seconds her second one was eight days five hours 23 minutes 33 seconds and that Mm. one was called sts-41-g ah yes that just That rolls right off the tongue. Rolls right off of it. (laughs) It was also on the Challenger, and she did the same thing on that mission, but her third mission was canceled because of the Challenger disaster. Mm -hmm. So, Megan, do you know anything about the disasters that NASA had to deal with? Only generally that the Challenger completely blew up upon uh, initiating a launch. I'm not sure what year. Yeah. I know it was in the 80s, I believe. So January 28th, 1986, the Space Shuttle Challenger basically fell apart 73 seconds into flight and killed all seven passengers on board, including a civilian school teacher. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm not even going to tell you anything else about the disaster today because there were actually two women on board and I have every intention of highlighting them both within the next couple of episodes, so stay tuned. The connection with Sally Ride, however, goes beyond her last mission to space being canceled because Ride was named to the Rogers Commission, which was a presidential commission set up to investigate what went wrong with the Challenger. Mm -hmm. So one of the engineers, Roger Boisjoli, he actually warned people of the technical problems that led to the Challenger falling apart months before it went up. So, Oh, man, okay. Yeah. If you recall, spacecrafts kind of shed pieces of itself as they burn their jet fuel to allow the shuttle to get into orbit. 
So in the making of the segments of the Challenger for that specific launch, there was something going on with the O-rings on the joints of the structures. And O-rings are basically just seals on joints that need to stay together and not fall apart. So these particular O-rings got too stiff at a low temperature, i.e. space temperature, and they broke. So once it got to the like the colder parts, once it was starting to get into space... Of the atmosphere, okay. Yeah. <laughs> People didn't listen to Roger. They didn't listen to him, and they used those particular O-rings anyway. And Sally was the only one to publicly back him up before all of this went down. Mm. Like, she actually hugged him in front of press as support. So, when the investigation of the disaster happened, it was Sally who had ended up providing the main information that led to the commission's public and official identification of the cause of the disaster. Okay. So... After this, I guess she didn't want to go into space anymore because she served as a special assistant to the NASA administrator for long-range and strategic planning. She did this until 1987, and then she made she actually made two major life choices that year. So one was to divorce her husband, and the other was to leave her position in Washington, D.C. and move back to California to work at the Stanford University Center for International Security and Arms Control. Okay. Then in... 1989, she became the director of the California Space Science Institute at the University of California. And then to top it off, our girl became a professor there as well. So she kind of switched from government to private and collegiate sectors. And that seems to be kind of a common theme with individuals that you've covered. Yeah. Having that government experience experience and then switching gears to the private sector and then um like your your last individual um was it dr jackson i think she is one of the top paid college presidents right now yes yeah she's still kicking ass yeah it's crazy what she did for that university yeah i i just think that academia when you when you get the grants that you need it allows for you to ask the questions that other places wouldn't allow you to ask it allows you to explore more. It gives you that freedom. And I think that's kind of why everybody always goes back, because they're scientists. They want to keep asking questions. They want to keep moving forward and help help essentially facilitate a new generation of scientists as well and, you know, kind of guide them along how they're going to ask questions and go from there. Mm-hmm. It's much more fun, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine less the need to have to justify the monetization of everything you're potentially putting out. Well, okay. So with listening to um, with listening to ologies, she does a lot of professors. She talks to a lot of professors, and a lot of their issues. The the worst thing about most of their jobs is getting that grant money. There's still technically red tape, mm-hmm. but I think it's just less so than a different type. Yeah than fucking nasa (laughs) and i mean it just allows for a little more creative focus so basically that's what she did in the mid-1990s she had her hand in some public outreach developments via nasa but she did more like the public part instead of like washington dc so they were called iss earth cam with a -A k-a-m at the end and Grail Moon Cam, again, K-A-M at the end. So basically, it allowed middle school and high school students to request images of both the moon and the Earth from space. Oh, that's pretty fun. And Earth Cam still exists, in case you're wondering. It's so cool. 
Yeah. <laughs> oh, and a little shout out for you, Mom, Sally, who was in the season five finale of Touched by an Angel. So I was about to say, for the love of God, don't tell me Dancing with the Stars. <laughs> no. No, no. Just Touched by an Angel. <laughs> she would be uniquely positioned in a show titled as such. <laughs> I never watched Touched by an Angel. That just sounds oh, inappropriate. I, I grew up on it because I have a very Catholic family. so And I do not. All right. Well, that's kind of fun. I imagine being someone like her and being like really excited to be like, I'm going to be on this TV show. I'd be like, oh, my God, woman, you have a PhD and you've been in space and you've done all these amazing things. <laughs> be like, yeah, I'm really excited to be on this TV show. But I still think Mae Jameson tops her tv show dreams when she was on star trek yeah no that was pretty badass i have (laughs) nothing comparable in any of the artists that i've covered at all (laughs) i mean yeah statistically they've all lived prior to the 1950s so that might have something to do with it but yeah so (laughs) on a more somber note in 2003 sally had to serve on another disaster committee the columbia disaster happened that year and it also served as the cause of death for seven people and also held two women one of which was kalpana chawla i hope i said that right who was the first woman of indian origin in space Hmm. so the difference here is that the shuttle fell apart upon re-entry into the earth's atmosphere so basically during launch a piece of foam broke off hit the inside of the shuttle's left wing and damaged the protective heat shielding panels From what I understand, there was not a forewarning for this mission, so it was a little bit better, but it was still, like, the death of seven people. Yeah, no, that's still hard. Yeah, and it's just, yeah. (laughs) I think that's that's the biggest thing is, like, these people, like, this was their life. This was what they worked so hard to get at, and it's what killed them at the end. So I'm very okay with staying on earth's surface so sally was actually the only person to serve in the investigations of both of the disasters in 2008 she endorsed obama for presidency and in 2009 she became a member of the review of the united states human spaceflight plans committee outside of nasa and presidential work she served on the advisory board of the national women's history museum congressional office of technology assessment the carnegie institution of washington and the ncaa foundation i'm absolutely sure that when 45 rolled around and inquired about someone heading his space force i'm sure she was very eager to volunteer (laughs) well here's the thing she thankfully didn't see trump get to presidency but also not thankfully yeah but if there was like a more convenient time to like clock out i think that's it yeah yeah she thankfully like worked closely with obama and like they did some wonderful stuff together Mm -hmm. she wrote or co-wrote seven books on space geared towards children specifically little girls 2001 she started a company called sally ride science so it still very much exists So I'm just going to read the first paragraph found on their website. It's their mission statement. Quote, Sally Ride Science at UC San Diego is a nonprofit organization run by the University of California, San Diego. It was founded as a company in 2001 by Sally Ride, America's first woman in space, along with Tam O'Shaughnessy, Karen Flammer, 
Terry McEntry, or Auntie Terry McEntry, and Alan Lopez to inspire young people in science, technology, engineering, and math, and to promote STEM literacy. Unquote. Ride won so many awards that I'm not going to list them off here. <laughs> the important thing here is that she was recognized for her work while she was alive, so she got to see it. That is, yeah, it's so satisfying because sometimes it's unfortunate when people are making these discoveries and might pass away a little bit on the younger side. And, yeah. and then after the fact, everyone's like, hey, that was actually a really great idea. By the way, <laughs> I think the, the saddest part here, though, she actually passed away after a 17-month battle with pancreatic cancer in 2012. Hmm. And her highest award, the Presidential Medal of Freedom, was awarded posthumously in 2013. But the happy part of this statement was that the person who accepted it on Sally's behalf was her life partner, Tam O'Shaughnessy. So she was one of the co-founders of Sally Ride Science, and she was also a childhood friend. They met while they were both trying to be like tennis players. Mm -hmm. They were together for 27 years. Sally just had a habit of keeping her private life private. So she wasn't denying anything, but she wasn't broadcasting anything either. So when Tam came out to pick up the award, uh, that was basically the confirmation that they were together and that Sally was actually part of the LGBTQ community, which made Sally not only the first American woman in space, but also the first person in that community to go into space as well. That, that's like a fun surprise. Like, surprise! Ha ha! <laughs> I'm kind of gay. Like, I was with her for 27 years. She wasn't alone. And we loved each other very much. Surprise. I love my husband for a woman. How's that? <laughs> sorry, not sorry. Sorry, not sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I think that's, that's a great way to kind of wrap it up, to be, like, surprised. Her life partner accepted her presidential award of oh, – what's it called? Presidential award of – not freedom? Presidential Medal of Freedom. I mean, it's a nice thing to end on that. Her life partner accepted her presidential award of freedom. I think it's beautiful. It's so beautiful. Yeah. That's beautiful. Um, I think she's the only, or she's the first confirmed person in the LGBTQ community. Um, there could have been somebody before her, but I, like, she was also in NASA Group 8. So NASA was just starting out. She was in two of the first ten missions into space. Like, I, the probability of her not being the first person in that community going up is very, very low. So Yeah, well, also the 1970s were not necessarily a terribly welcoming place. No. But yeah, that's my girl. Happy Pride! That's pretty fun. You made it sound like it was going to be like a terrible ending. No, I told you it wasn't about her. It was about her colleagues. Yeah, yeah. Imagine being the person to, like, investigate how your peers died. Like, no. Nah. I, I couldn't, I could not wrap my head around that. I mean, but, like, that type of level, like, I mean, working with the military or something, it's any type of exploration like that, being in space or sea or any extreme terrain, there's always that risk. I'm very happy staying on the Earth. All right. Well, give it a few decades, and we'll see come, like, 2070 when I might be able to wrangle for us two old ladies. 
<laughs> I'll be able to get the senior special. <laughs> All the applesauce we can eat. And we can go to space. <laughs> oh, no. Don't forget the prunes. Good for the digestive oh, system now that I can't chew the oatmeal anymore. Yeah, it'll be good. It'll be good. Oh, God. <laughs> if you enjoy My Favorite Feminist, we think you'll also enjoy the podcast for your misinformation. Katie and Morgan are two average American feminists who break down political issues and offer actionable ways you can help save democracy. They cover everything from white supremacy to the Green New Deal and nominate a new asshole to their wall of shame each week. <laughs> it's the information you need and none of the misinformation you don't. New episodes come out every Monday and you can find For Your Misinformation on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can check them out online at FYMIPod. Well... Mine doesn't have a terrible ending. No. Yeah, so that's that's good. Bit of a crappy childhood, but I mean, you know what? Who can't say that? Oh, yours had a crappy childhood? Yeah, a tad bit. Oh, no. But, you know, that happens when your parents die. Oh, no! Both of them? <laughs> yeah, both of them. She was an orphan, but not for science? Oh my, yeah, you're right. You know what? Oh. I'm so lucky that her parents didn't die and then some evil mustached scientist <laughs> tried to scoop her up for his nefarious 1840s experiments. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like the start of how she gets tied to like some railroad tracks. Oh no. I don't know why that's what I'm imagining for that time period I don't know and why sacrificing <laughs> orphans for science, but that's where I go. So thank you for that. You're welcome. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, before we get into dead parents, mm. I just want to say that it's almost 4th of July, which means today I'm going to get extra American. Gross. Yeah. Like like the podcast equivalent of a grill out at your uncle's place where they still give you shit for that one year that you asked if they had any veggie dogs and now they think you're one of those vegans and- Okay, no, Uncle Steve, like, vegetarian, and for God's sake, it's pronounced vegan. But that's beside the point. Isn't it annoying where you make, like, one preference? You're like, oh, can I have some vegetables? And everyone's like, are you a vegan? And you're like, oh, my God. Someone passed me the string beans. It's because your family is from a tiny-ass New York, like, blink-you-miss-it town. It's cute, no, but... No, they just like their meat and potatoes. Oh, God, that's awful. All right, well... For our country's Independence Day, on my end, what's more American than internalized colonialism that manifests in racial and gendered persona crafted to meet the Eurocentric needs of a white audience? Uh. So that's what we're going to cover today. Oh, no. Maybe we should have ended with mine. It's going to be fun. Okay, informative. It's going to be informative. Oh, God. All right. Yeah. So extra American. She died an early age. Okay, no, not really, okay? Out of all the people I've covered, and okay, she doesn't live to be like 101 like Grandma Moses, but she also doesn't suddenly pass away from brain cancer, and she was successful in her lifetime. Oh, oh, good. Yeah, so we're like two for two this episode. Oh, it's a good episode today. That's exciting. It is. It is. We are covering late 19th century sculptor Edmonia Lewis, which I'm like, I'm sure you've totally heard of. Oh, totally. Yeah. Totally. I have yeah. a picture of her on my desk. 
I have a bit of a soft spot for American sculptors in Rome during that period, and she was one of them. In Rome? In Rome. Oh! Yeah, we've covered that a little bit before. I mean, I didn't know there were that many sculptors who found their way to Rome. Oh, there was like a whole proper group that I will cover as a collection. She was someone kind of in and out of it. But she definitely cashed in on their presence because they established a a system for American women to come abroad to Rome and to learn formal stone sculpting. Gotcha. So that's where we're going today. But before we get to that bit, we're going to her childhood. Which was not happy. Not terribly. And it's also really, like, murky. That's the best way to describe it. Mm. So, like, for instance, we're not even entirely sure when she was born. Uh, okay. Most likely 1843 in New York State. Okay. Um, and that's pretty important because slavery is still going real hard in the good old U.S. of A. at that point. So her dad was from the West Indies. He worked as a gentleman's servant. And mom was part Chippewa. She sold traditional goods like moccasins to tourists. Ah, uh, okay. And they're also known as the Ojibwa. Their territory is traditionally in Canada, north of the Great Lakes, so, like, not New York State. Okay. And one thing led to another, and her parents died. What? Yeah. How? I have no idea. I knew you were going to ask that. I have no (laughs) idea. How did both of, like, what? I... It was by the time she was five. So, like, was it, like, a freak, like, horse carriage accident? Was it TB? I don't know. Probably tuberculosis. I mean... Oh, my money's on tuberculosis. Why not? (laughs) If we could have, like, a sponsor of this podcast, I feel like TB, they've been there for us. (laughs) Episode after episode. (laughs) For for a year and a half now. (laughs) I mean, just when you start to forget about him, you're like, oh, nope, and they're back. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so don't know how they died, so that's a little murky. And after that, what happens? That's also not entirely clear, but we're going to come back to that later. Okay. Yeah. Now, what we do know is that her older brother, he went west to California to cash in on the gold rush. Mm. And in the meanwhile, he was able to send money back and to fund her education. Brother. Yeah, so I, I don't know how much older he was, but he was able to provide for her. And that's pretty much a constant as she's growing up. So that's something. Hmm. So she's sent to an abolitionist school in New York State. And then after that, she goes to Oberlin College in Ohio. And that's a big deal. So that was the first predominantly white college to first accept African American men. And then two years later, women, making it the first co-ed college in the United States. Oh, that's so cool. I didn't know that. I didn't either. I was like, okay, that's a really fun fact. I bet Edmonia had, like, a great time. She had a super shitty time. Oh, no. It's 1859. She's about 16. And, okay, shit is racist. Yeah. She's accused of... Of poisoning two of her white classmates. What? Yeah. It's not a period of her life she ever talked about, so I only kind of found 
a few references here and there, so we, we don't know details, but she was acquitted. It was a horribly, tr- like, public trial. Oh, my God. And even though she was acquitted at some point, someone, <laughs> white, kidnapped her, beat her, and left her for dead in a field. Oh, my God. Yeah. 150 years later, and that shit is still going on. Oh, my God. Okay, the crazy thing is, though, she didn't let that detour her from getting her education. I, yeah, I don't know how I would have. Oh, my God. I I think I would, I've been like, all right, I'm done here. She didn't let that stop her. And what's really fucked up is that it was actually the college itself that got in her way. Oh, no. So the year after, they accused her of stealing art supplies and they wouldn't let her finish her last year. Like, refused to let her register for classes. What is wrong? I can't. I'm, I know that it's, like, in the 1800s. I, I just... <sighs> but I think you're so upset because that's not too far off from what's still going on today. I know. Yeah, and that's why when I was reading about it, I was like, that's still a really fucked up connection to contemporary events. I'm like, I'm going to include it. But I, I acknowledge that she didn't like to talk about it during her lifetime, and I totally get that, but it, it's... It's still important for part of the context. So 1863, the same year the Emancipation Proclamation was issued by President Lincoln, 20-year-old Edmonia was like, screw this, I'm going to Boston. So it's cool, because like, through family connections, Edmonia had these letters of introduction to very prominent anti-slavery figures within the Boston community. Okay. And those letters were like, her social in. And through those connections... She's introduced and she starts training under a sculptor, Edward Brackett. And Edward, he had sculpted a bust of a radical abolitionist, John Brown, who was hung for treason. And when Edmonia saw that, she said of Edward that he was a friend to her people. Because that John Brown that he sculpted was, like, super radical anti-slavery. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like. So she, she wanted to work with him. And yeah, like she recognized that his principles were very much in line with her own, that he wasn't, you know, a piece of poo. As she had dealt with in her life. And like, like the fact that she's training as a sculptor, that's a really big deal. Because like during this time, like the Civil War is still raging. You know, racial and gender inequalities are heavy as ever. And sculpting is not a profession that's welcoming to anyone who isn't a white man. Yeah. Over her career, Admonia is constantly navigating that, and she develops a really savvy public persona to combat it. I don't think it's one that you'd agree with, Milena, but I mean, like, hate the game, not the player. What happened? I mean, okay, you'll see. But real quick, I just want to go over the art she was making. So under Edward, Admonia was making these commemorative anti-slavery figurative works. Bust and medallions of leaders within the movement— And from these copies and photos, um, she was making a pretty penny. So between the money from that and then her brother's support, like, that's what funded her three years in Boston. Oh, cool. Yeah, making these, like, neoclassical-style pieces. And when I say neoclassical, like, think of a traditional marble bust of a wealthy white guy. Mm. And she did those? Not just yet, but she will be. Okay. Yeah. So the time comes, 1866. Admonia is about 23, 
And she saved up enough money to be like, I am getting the hell out of the United States. Good. Yes. Get out. Exactly. We would if we could. I hear Canada is lovely this time of year. I was just talking to Skylar about going to Canada, but probably not. You know what? You haven't done grad school just yet. That is a perfect opportunity to cash in on it. I'm so ready. I can be cold. It's fine. You know what? There are some sacrifices that must be made, Milana. Yeah, so like we've covered with other artists, if a woman wanted a professional finer education and a chance at a a career, America was not the place to do it. Right. So Edmonia, you know, like, never mind the sexism, like, racism was a whole other obstacle for her. I mean, that's the reason she couldn't finish at college. Oh. And like other African-American artists that we've covered, Edmonia goes abroad and she settles in Rome. Mm. And for those of you that caught the first episode of this season, episode 25, we cover Adelaide Johnson, who's known as a sculptor of the suffrage movement. Edmonia's life is going to seem pretty similar, and that's because they were in Rome about the same time as one another. Did they know each other? They had, because they're sculptors, right? Yeah, it was a fairly small pocket of American sculptors. I want to say roughly about 10. I'm sure they knew of one another. Yeah. I cannot confirm or deny. Okay. I think they probably knew of one another, uh, whether or not they were going around to one another's studios and, like, having a girls' night together. Yeah. I'm not sure. <laughs> there are kind of different different levels of that across the, the group of women working within Rome. Right. And, like, collectively, they were known as the white marmorian flock. And at first, that was kind of a little bit of, like, like that was people shit-talking them. But, I mean, historically, like, that's how we know them now. And it's just a group of, like, expat American women who recognize that in the late 1800s, Rome provided them the professional and educational opportunities to actually be able to pursue sculpting. Right. And so that's what they did. And it was kind of nice because for, like, Edmodia, she got there and she did not look back. Oh, okay. Nice. Yeah, like, we've covered other artists who have trained abroad and then returned back to the United States, but, like, not her. And there's, like, one artist in particular that we covered early on, Mita Vox work Fuller, and, like, she trained in France, and I always wondered, I'm like, what if she had stayed in Paris? Yeah. I'm like, I bet she just would have been happier and had a, a much more <laughs> creative career. You don't, you don't need to be an American. <laughs> like, just leave. <laughs> I mean, we would, if we could. Mm-hmm. But Edmonia, you know, she recognized that it was a way better standard of living for her in Italy, and she only returned back to the States for exhibitions and to sell her work. Okay. That's good. And on one trip, she had work in a um, bicentennial show, and talking to the New York Times, she commented, quote, I was practically driven to Rome in order to obtain the opportunities for art culture and to find a social atmosphere where I was not constantly reminded of my color. Mm. The land of liberty had no room for a colored sculptor. Oh, God. Even though she was halfway across the world from the United States, like, she could not escape escape the sexist and racist American ideals. Right. And this is where Edmonia's mastery of public relations, I mean, a public persona comes in. It started in her studio practice. Edmonia, she was like a really good sculptor. Her work is really solid. Primarily, she's doing marble portraits. And unlike other artists who took advantage of the stone, of the skilled stone workers specific to Rome, Edmonia does every step of the sculpting process herself. Okay. 
So like, for instance, sometimes you'd bring in um, assistants and they would rough out a block of marble for you, like per your measurements. Right. And then you would do the fine details. Yeah. Like they would just kind of do the grunt work and that's what you're paying them for. Yeah. But for Ammonia, her reason for not doing it was twofold. One, I don't think she had the money. She just didn't have the funds to do that. Right. And then two, by doing everything herself, people couldn't claim that the work wasn't hers. Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Because as a colored woman, that was a major risk. Yeah. People would just deny that she even had the skill set to accomplish work like that. Ah. Yeah, yeah. That's the type of shitty stuff that she was going up against. Because she really is the first professional African-American sculptor to be recognized internationally. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, I mean, a concern like that was very legitimate. Yeah. Because there just wasn't anyone like her previously. And, I mean, with the sexism and the blatant racism, it was very easy to be like, no, you can't do that. Right. You're not capable of it. Right. I mean, there was an asshat who even wrote about her. That, like, in regards to her being part of that group of American women sculptors, quote, one of the sisterhood was a negress whose color, picturesquely contrasting with that of her plastic material, was the pleading agent of her fame. Ugh. Yeah, like, that's another shitty dynamic of it. Of, like, well, people are just interested in you because you're not white. Oh, no. So she was dealing with a lot of really messed up things on a lot of different levels. Yeah. I mean, like, as a whole, women, and especially colored women, were still, were and still are, like, publicly deemed less than. And so, to navigate that, Admonia crafted a persona that I did cater to the biased ideas of her white audience. Hmm. And it worked really well, and she made a shit ton of money off of it. <laughs> She's like, all right, I'll play the game. Not a problem. And she, she did. She really did. Jeez. Now, the, the quality of her work it made her studio a must-see stop for tourists. Right. So, like, at the time, traveling the continent in a grand tour, that was a very popular thing to do for upper-middle-class families. And Admonia's studio, like, it was listed in the most popular guidebooks. Oh. Like, there's a gat. Oh, it, it was, like, a thing. <laughs> like, if you're doing a grand tour, like, the places that you need to stop and see. And so stopping in on, like, artist studios and on writers, like, that was that was part of it. I mean, think of it. Like, they're creating content to be consumed by the public. So, I mean, in the days before, like, Netflix, like, I mean, what else are you going to do? Yeah. So when the wealthy would stop into her studio, they were met with someone described in multiple interviews as, quote, a kind of gifted child, yeah. naive in manner, happy and cheerful, and all unconscious of difficulty. Because obeying a great impulse, she prattles like a child and with much simplicity and spirit, pours for forth all her ambitions. Uh, oh. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack in that. Ah, uh, I don't know if... So, okay, here's the thing. Edmonia knew that coming across as non-threatening was the best way to go. Yeah. So this is a woman who's a very savvy businesswoman. I mean... Like, she became fluent in Italian because she had to. Right. Like, she was like, I'm going to move to Italy. I'm going to start a business. I'm going to make it successful. I'm going to become one of the best internationally, and I'm going to learn a new language in the process. Right. And she did. Fuck yeah. So, privately, she's very driven and ambitious, but 
public facing. She's this very quiet, soft sculptress. And at the same time, she's also emphasizing her Native American heritage as a marketing tool. Mm. Yeah. Now, okay, remember how I said her childhood was murky? Yeah. Well, Edmonia said that after her parents died, she stayed with her mother's Chippewa tribe. Okay. They lived off the land. Edmonia learned the traditional way of life um, up until she went away to school. And in interviews, like, she really, really emphasized the impact that that had on her early life, like, up until she was about 12. Mm -hmm. Now, in other accounts, they say she grew up in New Jersey. What? Yeah. (laughs) Now, how much of this is a fictionalized narrative? We don't know. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was a new work. What? Those are two very different things. <laughs> They're very, very different. And like I said, her early life, it, she's someone overall that like for people to try to create a co- comprehensive like biography of her, it's been very difficult. Yeah. Because she's been very fluid in narratives about her life. She has to be. She has to be a chameleon. It, that is a really great way to put it. And and that's that's the truth of it. So like how much of it is true or not like we don't know but Edmonia knew that if she framed her upbringing within the prevailing like noble savage stereotype of the day it would work to her benefit and that noble savage like that's the idea that like Native Americans while a primitive people can be assimilated and made docile by forced integration into western culture and, like, from it, you get, like, a romanticized version of someone like Pocahontas. That's what people were eaten up. And by I say people, I mean the white middle class was eaten up in the late 1800s. That's what people want. That is exactly what people wanted. And Edmonia saw that. And she's like, that's what I'm going to give you. Oh, my God. That same attitude, like, last episode, our artist Gladys Bentley did something really similar, mm-hmm. you know. Recognizing that as a woman of color, she needs to subvert the inherently biased system and using people's preconceived notions against them for financial and personal success. So Edmonia had this childlike and exoticized persona that really captivated people. But, like, to be clear, like, she knew how to captivate their biases and their racist notions. Well. It made it easier for her to build a clientele. Yeah. It's just, that's just super stressful. Like, you shouldn't have to be, but, like, that's the world you live in. I know, I know. It's it's still a thing today. Like even it's it's more subtle, but it's still a reality. You're a person of color, and you're coming in strong. You're you're gonna get a lot of pushback. Oh, I mean, yeah, like the stereotype of like the angry black woman. So she kind of met the other extreme of it. Of you know, she was kind of a a small figured woman, and so she kind of amped up that childlike physicality to herself. Yeah, there are a lot of things. I was like, this is really messed up, and it's so messed up because it's still so relevant to today. Yeah. I was like, oh. So, yeah, a little, little on the heavier content this episode. Mm-hmm. So she's dealing with all that, navigating it. She's in Rome. She's working strictly in marble, and she's making popular work. You know, commissioned portraits, classical and biblical-themed work, copies yeah. of antique busts, like, and it's all in that, that neoclassical style. And the, the Smithsonian American Art Museum, actually, they have a, a good bit of her work. About eight pieces. Among their collection, there are 
three that do define some recurring themes that Edmonia worked within for her sculptures. For the works, like the first one, is a full-figure work depicting Hagar, who is in the Old Testament, um, the Egyptian maidservant to Abraham's wife. She had Abraham's first son, and his wife got pissed and banished her. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't because I'm not religious. uh, So that's the first one. And then the second one, we've got a full-figure historical depiction of Cleopatra's suicide. Oh. There's that. Yeah. And the third one is a multi-figure depiction of an old Native American era maker and his daughter. Oh. And they're all noteworthy because, like, they're really loaded with social implications in Edmonia's choosing to sculpt them and then how she sculpted them. Right. So the first one, you know, personifies courage and strength, but also in being African, like, reasserts the biblical importance of her ethnicity. Right. But, like, the same time in the second piece, Cleopatra, Edmonia, she's unique in that she sculpted the likeness of Cleopatra based off of historical references. So she used, like, coins that were kind of a bit more of a contemporaneous example. And that actually puts Cleopatra more in line with people claim more of a Greek descent. There's an argument Mm. between whether or not she was more Greek or African. And in Edmonia choosing to do that, like, She's putting distance between this, like, over-sexualized and treacherous nature that people were inserting on an African Cleopatra. I didn't know that. Because, like, think about it. It's, there are some really good um, academic essays that really break these things down. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, I'm just kind of giving it a one-liner. But it's worth noting because these are some really big topics that, Edmonia is processing within her work that when you look at it, you're like, oh, that's nice. Like, it's a nice sculpture. And you're like, no, let's put it into a little bit more context. Right. And so it's something that scholars are, are still debating, which I think is pretty interesting. Oh, God. There's that. And so that's Edmonia's way of, like, subtly asserting her values, you know, in a way of swaying public ideas through her art. Correct. And then we're left with the arrow maker and his daughter. And that's noteworthy and how it offers a sanitized version of Native Americans that Edmonia presents to, like, a white audience as a Native American. Mm. So, like, going back to the noble savage, Edmonia is pretty unique among her contemporary sculptors because she's sculpting Native Americans as a Native American. Versus? As, like, a white white person. Yeah. And the way that they would perceive a Native American. She still ties into that, though. I know. Well, I mean, it's not so far away from the 1800s. I know, I know. And again, I think it's her being aware of what she can do within the market. What she can get away with. Exactly. Yeah. So I just wanted to mention those because there, there are three pieces that deal with all these really complex themes of race and power and representation. And those were three things that Edmonia was constantly navigating within her own career. Right. So we just have kind of three different aspects of it. And it's interesting to note Edmonia's work that was inspired by a poet, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Oh, God. Say that five times fast. He wrote the work, The Song of Hiawatha. It's an epic poem about a fictionalized Native American couple written by a white guy that, like, reinforces prevailing notions of, like, what American Native Americans should be at the time. Oh. It was super popular. Really? 
Yeah. Um, and Edmonia, she really liked it. And a lot of other artists were inspired by it and created sculptures and paintings. And Edmonia, she made portraits about some of the main characters within the poem. But like, like stepping back, we got like an idealized ethic character written for a white audience, inspiring art for a white audience made by a person of the same ethnic group, which in and of itself is like reinforcing the ideals being catered to like within the white audience so it's just a vicious cycle yeah it's like some weird inception level of like oh god eurocentric colonialism kind of and racism and i mean really what's more american than that (laughs) i mean if we're gonna blow shit up this holiday like let's remember these founding principles that our country was founded on Manipulating everyone who's not white, male, or straight. Ugh. Yup. Yup. So, I mean, like I said, like, Edmonia, she became the first internationally recognized professional African-American sculptor, but she was able to do so because she was, she was navigating these things. Right. And, you know, we might not agree with how she did it, but, like, at the same time, I'm sure we can't fully appreciate just what she was going through. Yeah. Like, we we wouldn't know where to begin if we were in her shoes. The type of oppression she was going against then is, like, it's still there today. Right. She recognized it, and she knew how to play against it. And by virtue of her success, like, in her rising to international fame and recognition, like, that opened opportunities for others after her. Right. So her peak came when she was in her 20s to her 40s, and that was the 1860s up to the 1880s. And after that, like, neoclassical art, like, fell out of style, and Paris emerged as, like, the cool kid art capital of the world. Mm -hmm. That's where all the Impressionists were in their little cafes, getting all (laughs) smudgy with their paint, uh, with their their darn pastel colors. Gross. So yeah, so things just kind of shifted in terms of what was popular. Uh, Edmonia falls off the map in her later years. We really don't have much details beyond that. One of her biographers did uncover a death note from 1907 in London Uh, that lists her as dying from kidney inflammation. Oh, no. So she would have been about 63. Yeah. What did it say? That she died from kidney inflammation. Oh. Oh, I thought she had, like, written something, like, super... No, it's actually just, like, what, how she died, like, after... The- yeah, like, a, a death announcement. Yeah. Like, a birth certificate, yeah, like I suppose. like an obituary? Yeah. Okay. So, she's complicated. Oh, God. And especially because we don't have any, like, first-hand insight. Right. Like, there's no journals or anything. Right. And, like, like you pointed out, like, her... The public records are very fluid, because, like you said, she was a chameleon. So there were narratives that were embellished. Uh, but end of the day, she made good art. And she made a good amount of money off of people and their ignorance. And for me, like, how much more American can you get? Oh, God. So I thought that would be fun to keep in mind when celebrating the independence of this nation. Um, you know, just some casual kind of points to keep in mind for our 4th of July. So that is Edmonia Lewis. I'm just going to stick to celebrating my brother's birthday. Lame. That's it. 
I have no reason to celebrate the nation that I'm in right now. <laughs> oh, our COVID numbers. I don't want to talk about I it. Just, <laughs> I just feel like all the people who were the ones who did the group project, like, in its entirety in school. Yeah. Like, we're the ones we're like, I shouldn't be surprised. I should know better. Yeah. <laughs> Straight up. <laughs> the same people who have been staying home and wearing their masks <laughs> and limiting travel and going out and doing – not going to bars or bowling or getting your goddamn haircut. Uh, it's so bad. <laughs> Everyone else is ruining it for Everyone us. Everyone else, literally. It's just like a constant – I have to just go up to strangers and be like, you're wearing that wrong. Like, stop. Oh, do you? Have you have you reached that point where you're like, I'm not holding back as a medical professional. I'm going to tell you off. I, it doesn't end well. I, it's more like, a, oh, by the way, just so you know, you have to cover your nose and your mouth. Canada, if you'll have us, that would be great. We will gladly come. Don't we? We will. We will make you proud. Oh, Canada. <laughs> do, 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 do. Yeah. Uh, Jim Carrey. We love Jim Carrey. Oh, we do. We, even if he's an anti-vaxxer. Wait, what? I'm sorry to ruin your childhood. Oh, fuck me. I'm so sorry. I've never written to a celebrity, but I feel like that would be worth it. I'd be like, dear Mr. Carey, <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> Why? Why? <laughs> nah, he's, if you've ever seen him recently, like, went a little off the deep end. <sighs> Are there any other anti-vax celebrities you want to tell me about and break my heart? Uh, no, I think that's the worst one. That's the one that really gets me. Well, um, yeah, Canada, there's other things that we love about you, too. <laughs> All your nice people. I think it's just your lack of Americans. That's really that's, the main selling point for me. That's the biggest part. Yeah. That's... I'm going to be honest. <laughs> lack and of we're, Hey, we're both of Canadian baby-making age. Milana, that actually earns us extra points on their uh, application process. Oh, yeah? It does. Oh, heck yeah. Let's do this. Oh, goodness. Okay. Well, now I feel like this podcast is brought to you by the depressing fact that Jim Carrey is an anti-vaxxer. We, oh. Yeah, I'd rather have turtle sex. You, <laughs> yeah, no, this is true. <laughs> like, that was fun last it's episode. so much better than Jim Carrey being an anti-vaxxer. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Ah, turtle sex. As always, if you've made it this far, we really appreciate it. We really do. Everything's super stressful right now, so yeah. we can help you chill out a little bit. That is, we've done our jobs. We really have. So, Milana, if people are interested in learning more about who we've covered and to see their faces, where can they go? We have a website, myfavoritefeminist.com. You can email at, you can email us at info at myfavoritefeminist.com. Our Instagram and Facebook are My Favorite Feminist. Our Twitter is at Milena Megan. That's at M-I-L-E-N-A-M-E-G-A-N. You can listen to us on Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and iTunes. Please, it takes two minutes to rate, subscribe, you know, like us, that sort of thing. And in the comment section below, you can tell us about that one project you did in school where... You were the one who did all the work. What was it? Did you get an A, Megan? Okay, actually, I was thinking about this the other day. There was one group project. It was very memorable because three out of four people were the ones who were always used to doing the group project by themselves. Oh. Was this in high school? 
Yeah, this is an this is an AP English. So there was actually three of us like actually working on a project. Oh, that's so cool. It's really embarrassing. Uh, we were covering The Handmaid's Tale, and so we did a popsicle stick video version a of it. Popsicle. It was was it you like you Mary and Shauna? No, no, it was, it was um. It was Michael Lynch and Gary Fenstermaker. Oh! Yeah. And then Mary Matowski was the person who didn't do anything. And in her credits, we put her as everything. Oh. So she was like the camera director and the producer. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. So me and my friends, two of us did little popsicle stick characters, key scenes from the book, while our other friend recorded and did not have to be involved he, he has complete plausible deniability <laughs> um i was wondering the other day i'm like is that still on youtube somewhere i have no idea please fucking find it oh my god please find it we can post it on the on the website it'll be great yeah so that's my that's my group project where we actually did it as a group for the most part what about you i don't i don't know I can't remember. I remember all the good projects. Like, uh, we basically made a little mini putt-putt golf course. Oh, that sounds like fun. Yeah. Like, that was a good one. Teamwork. Teamwork. And we got we got a pretty good, for a geometry class, we actually got a pretty good grade because neither one of us is great at math. So, it's pretty solid. All right. So, we, we had some pretty okay school projects. Yeah. But, yeah. No, collectively as a nation, we are not pulling together for our putt-putt geometry projects not even close or our popsicle stick nope. literary interpretations come on guys get your shit together yeah we don't have it in us apparently no that's depressing but welcome to america <laughs> so on that note we'll see you next time guys bye Once again, I will say that hurt. Ah! You fell. Where'd you go? I'm right here. Oh, shit. Ah! Ah! We're doing well today. <laughs>